0: Hello and welcome to our panel podcast entitled Racing the Recovery. Today is the 9th of June and I am joined remotely by Sheldon MacDonald, Mayank Markande, Nathan Sweeney, Jen Corston, Alex Byrne and Asim Kadri. Since those turbulent days of March, equity markets have rallied sharply, boosted by huge government stimulus and central bank support, confidence has returned with a bang and markets seem to be racing to get ahead of a V-shaped economic recovery. It's very much a risk-on rally, and value stocks have been leading the charge in recent weeks. Our discussion today will consider whether these markets have in fact broken too early, anticipating sharp recovery, when there is still little evidence for the timing of a return to economic growth or indeed corporate profitability. Before we do that, Sheldon, could you please give us a few recent highlights for the major asset classes?
1: Thanks, Lorna. Yes. As you mentioned, turbulent days in March, and we had drawdowns in equity markets in the region of 30% or so. But again, as you mentioned, very strong recovery since then. And we've even got some markets now in positive territory on a year-to-date basis. So US markets have been leading the charge, and certainly the NASDAQ is very clearly in positive territory. The S&P 500 also in positive territory now. UK and European markets are lagging a little bit behind that, but still on a net basis, the MSCI world is now just 2% down on a year-to-date basis after that recovery. Meanwhile, global bonds, they've been doing their job providing stability, and we've got global bonds up in the region of about 2%. So you've got really mixed asset portfolios. Yeah, A 50-50 portfolio is pretty much square on a year-to-date basis. Other asset classes have also been moving quite dramatically, so the oil price, Who can forget, moving into negative territory at one point. But the oil price now down about 60% year to date. But that's after a recovery of over 30% just in the last couple of weeks. And finally, gold also doing its job as a safe haven. The gold price is now up about 11% for the year to date.
0: Thank you for that. And Nathan, as Sheldon referred to there, the rebound in equity markets seems to be most marked in the US. Why do you think the US is leading the world out of their bear markets?
2: So Lorna, I think a lot of this has to do with the policy response. So if we think back to what happened, you know, the market started to fall in kind of mid-February, continued to fall for about a month. But, you know, towards the end of that free fall, what you saw was the Fed stepped in. So what they did was they implemented some aggressive policy responses and the market reacted because, you know, the market is now expecting that. The action taken by the Fed will bridge the gap which COVID is causing from an economic perspective until that data improves so just to give you an idea of what took place you know the fed has initially turned on the taps and pumped in three trillion dollars so this is quite a big number and it's very hard to kind of quantify it but we can try and kind of look at this relative to historical incidences where the fed has stepped in just to give you some context So if we look back to 2007 and 2009, the financial crisis, it took the Fed a very long time before they reduced interest rates and before they implemented quantitative easing. But this time around, what you saw was within a matter of weeks, they started to turn on the taps and they slash interest rates. And if we look at the scale of what took place or what's taking place today, and the way to uh, kind of put that into perspective is if we look at the financial crisis in 7 09, the Fed was buying or implementing quantitative easing at a pace of about 120 billion per month. Now, if we look at it this time around, it's 50 billion per day. So, this kind of really gives you a sense of the action that the Fed has taken and why the market has responded so positively. But I think the other thing to remember, specifically from a US perspective, is that the US market is full of global leaders. So, if we look at the stock market, you've got technology leaders, you've got media leaders, you've got healthcare leaders, and all of these companies are expected to benefit as a result of the impact of covid so if you think about the structural shift to going online to selling product online etc a lot of these companies are based in the u.s and will benefit so i think that's one of the key reasons global leaders and stimulus and that's why the market has rallied so strongly
0: yes thank you for that Not sort of global leaders in Europe, Alex, but it seems a rather different picture in terms of performance. Why do you think that is?
3: I'd probably reiterate a lot of the points that Nathan's made, really. I don't necessarily think it's been particularly weaknesses of Europe per se, but just massive strength of the US. So in Europe, we've had massive amounts of stimulus. It hasn't been to the extreme level that the US has but it's still a massive number of stimulus that's been put forward in, in Europe. It's been slightly slower in terms of its implementation, I would say, but that's just part and parcel of investing in Europe, because you're investing in all these different member countries. It's not just you know one government that makes a decision that it's implemented. You have to get buy-in from each individual member state. So it's just a lot of the politics of it. Um, there's a lot of competing factions. They've tried to put this in as part of the ongoing seven-year finance plan. So it's, there's a number of different political elements that have just meant that the implementation has been slightly slower it all gets stuck in the delivery to a certain extent there. Europe has done well in the upside. It's not done as well as the US, but it's you know, on competing terms with other regions around the world. But it did suffer slightly more in the downside. You've got to remember that the European index is slightly more cyclical than it get in the US, Point which Nathan's raised multiple times, is that tech forms a big component of US indices. In Europe, it tends to be more banks and cyclical companies, so it's obviously going to sell off more. It's little bit more dependent on external factors so exports the global economy is a little bit more entwined with i would say in the us so again when global growth suffers as it has done and globalization suffers as it has done europe's going to suffer slightly more than the other regions we saw that
0: with the
3: german export data today didn't we it's an interesting point Grace, because i mean the data itself the sentiment's been pretty good so you know we've had clearly massive negative opinions but we are seeing decent recovery in the sentiment side of things so the surveys are all pointing upwards they've had a decent rebound not back to the same levels but they've rebounded nicely but the actual the kind of fast twitch data the things which you see from the underlying economies themselves so like say factory orders production numbers those kind of things they're still in the the doldrums really of, of where they have been over the last few months
2: And Lauren, I think that's an important point, because you may see different economies rebounding at different paces. So I fully expect, you know, the US from an economic standpoint to recover quicker than, say, Europe, as an example. And, you know, that will be driven by the stimulus response. The makeup of the benchmark as well will also be a driver of that.
0: Yes, thanks for that. And I think it's probably worth stopping at this point and, and looking at China, the world's second biggest economy, which went into and, of course, came out of lockdown first. Asim, what pointers can you give us for how an economic recovery might play out in the rest of the world?
4: So as you touched upon, China was obviously the first in, first out of the crisis. So it was the first country to experience the virus. And then I was the first to see a normalization in economic activity. So it's probably a good guide or indicator of how the general shape of the recovery may also pan out in the developed world. So generally, the recovery in China has been fairly uneven. There's been a lot of divergence between the speed of the normalization in the industrial part of the economy and the demand side of the economy, i.e. services. So initially, the recovery in manufacturing was quite fast in March and April, and that was amid kind of strong quality support for factory work presumption whilst consumer activity remained weak and well below normal levels. However, we're now seeing signs of a delayed recovery in the services sector, and we're seeing increasing signs on consumer activity picking up, and that was evidenced by services PMI figures for May, which came in at 55, the highest level in 10 years. So there are encouraging signs that we're now seeing more of a broad recovery in the Chinese economy, although I should note that there is still a long way to go for the demand side of the economy before reaching normal levels, as manufacturing has done. And there's also still the knock-on impact from weaker global activity to contend with. So a lot of uncertainty still persists.
0: Yes, indeed. And nonetheless, the Chinese administration is
4: unwilling to provide a GDP growth target for this year. Yeah, exactly. So despite the rebound in activity that I've alluded to, Evidently, there does remain a huge amount of uncertainty regarding the outlook from a macro perspective. And that was really illustrated by the Chinese government, as you mentioned, for the first time ever, not setting a GDP growth target for this year at the National People's Congress meeting, which took place a couple of weeks ago. So this decision to abandon the growth target was fundamentally driven by those significant uncertainties that the Chinese economy is currently facing. And those include the domestic recovery path, which obviously still has a long way to go. Weak external demand due to the impact of lower global growth, and also the risks of a potential second wave in the virus, and also geopolitical risks which have resurfaced over the last month. However, it's still important to note that it's not, not as if the Chinese government are completely ignoring economic growth, as they've still set targets to support employment by creating 9 million new urban jobs. And there are still other social economic targets that have been set, and that evidently will rely on stable growth support. It's more the fact that they think that putting a number on that growth figure is currently impossible, given all of the prevailing uncertainty. And I think that's also an important takeaway with regards to the global recovery. since It really shows that even when economies around the world start to normalise, uncertainty will still linger for a long time. Indeed, and
0: the great unknown is this possibility of a second wave. If we move from growth now to inflation expectations... Maya, the inflation numbers coming through from the major economies are unsurprisingly weak. Are bond markets, do you think, telling a different story on the recovery to equity markets?
5: So, Lorna, as you pointed out, inflation is unsurprisingly weak, and there is only so much spending that can be done when you've been sort of locked inside your homes. In the UK, inflation came out at 0.8% year in year for April, relative to 1.5% for the previous month. So, quite a big drop in inflation, but at the same time, expectations from the market was for inflation to be 0.9%. So the market clearly appreciates that inflation will be lower given the situation that we're currently in. I wouldn't necessarily say that bond markets are telling a different story than equities. What I would say is bond markets are pricing in a near zero interest rate environment for a for the foreseeable future, but for even an extended period of time. This is in the US, UK, as well as in the other developed economies. So it's more the expectations that interest rates are going to remain close to zero, or even there's been some talks about possibly going into negative territory. And the market is pricing this in, in terms of where bond yields are on the short end of the curve, but also on the longer end in the 10-year point.
0: And if we could turn to Jen specifically on the UK guilt or government bond markets, then there was an auction last month where yields actually were negative, and that's never happened before. What should we read
6: into this, do you think? Well, it was more of a symbolic moment for the UK. Japan, Germany, and some other European countries have been selling bonds with negative yields for quite some time now. Basically means that investors will get back less than they paid if they held the bond to maturity. But in practice, professional investors don't do this in a trade according to supply and demand. But nonetheless, investors seem
0: happy to buy a negative yielding bond.
6: That guilt auction that you mentioned was oversubscribed and suggests that investors still want safe haven assets and also think that the Bank of England will increase QE. And if nothing else, at least it shows that investors aren't put off by the government's huge borrowing plans. That's true enough. And if we just stay with the UK for a moment there, there are so many
0: other complications and uncertainties on the horizon, and not least
6: Brexit. Yes, Brexit is back, or at least Brexit uncertainty is back, and could quite easily choke any sort of recovery as we get close to that potential cliff edge at the end of this year. We've already seen sterling react to lack of progress in negotiating a trade deal. And I would expect it to be volatile for the rest of the year. And this will be particularly tough for domestic companies trying to recover. Mayank alluded
0: earlier there to this considerable overhang of savings, this great difficulty of spending money in a lockdown, and we probably all have personal experience of that. But this is potentially billions of dollars. Nathan, do you believe US consumers will save this money or spend?
2: I think that's an important question, Lorna, if you think about what's happened now, you know, are consumers not willing to spend because they're concerned about the future or is it because literally they can't because of lockdown measures? And if we think about the U.S., specifically the consumer, the consumer accounts for about 70 percent of GDP growth or growth in the U.S. economy if we think about the US, the US has always been a big consumer culture. So I would expect that we get lots of spending when these lockdown measures are lifted. And just to give you an example of some metrics which show you how the consumer is currently positioned or that they're in quite a good position. If we think about, say, personal income as an example. So if we look at the data that was released in April, it showed that personal income jumped to ten spot five percent so this was the biggest rise we've seen in personal income And basically, what that is reflecting is it's reflecting payments by the government, so social benefit payments to individuals that came from recovery programs which were linked to COVID-19. And as a result, you've seen that personal income, you know, has increased dramatically. And then also household savings rates have also seen very dramatic levels of increase. So the data that was released in April showed you that household savings had increased at 33%. And to give you an idea, this number normally runs around a level of say seven to eight percent so there's a lot of money there that the consumer has their hands on and you know so once lockdown measures are lifted people are going to go out and spend that money and that's going to give a boost to the economy so that should be a big driver of a return to growth quicker than expected.
0: Yes as you say potential fuel to the fire there but perhaps a more cautious approach in Europe Alex overall?
2: To a degree the consumer's
3: not a as big a part of the economy makeup as it is in the U.S. And, um, I mean, one of the notable exceptions is probably Germany, which gives a good reflection. So this isn't necessarily the consumer, but just to see how attitudes have the chips and so what Germany's obviously been the one more, more conservative uh, economy within Europe in terms of the fiscal stimulus problem. And they've been arguably the leaders in that over the last three months or so. They've had some of the strongest stimulus measures, some of the strongest... Fiscal response, um, which is quite interesting in terms of how culturally or how differently the, the market might be perceived to see how Germany will deal with it on an ongoing basis, whether their attitudes to, to fiscal stimulus may change over the long term.
0: It's very unusual for Germany, isn't it, to be spending
3: money like that? It's always been the bugbear of, I guess, the ECB and, and other EU members that Germany's continually conservative and prudent in how it um, tries to balance its books, whereas here it's obviously been one of the, the forerunners of putting stimulus into the economy itself. And in quite a progressive way, honestly, in the way it's been doing it, the things it's trying to target are not just for the sake of them. There's a lot of stuff which positive for things like environment and social and governance elements as well.
0: Part of the building back better, perhaps. Mike, in the end, is this sharp equity market rally based on well-founded hopes, do you think? Or is it all down to liquidity?
5: Yeah, I would say, you know, sharp equity rally is probably an understatement given what we've seen in terms of, returns, especially for the U.S. equity market, which is close to flat for the year, and NASDAQ is actually up, up 12%. But well, we have been, at least in the last couple of months, in the midst of a pandemic which has resulted in a world shutdown. As we know, however, the market and the economy are two separate things. And what the market is pricing in is clearly that there is a slowdown. It appreciates we have a very elevated unemployment rate and negative economic growth. But it's looking six to 12 months ahead. And what it's pricing in now is a V-shaped recovery in economic profits and I would say by extension in the economy. Now, from my perspective, I would say it's a scenario that could certainly play out. There are definitely positive catalysts in play for that to happen. The first one is liquidity and stimulus and the scale and size of that stimulus and the ongoing commitment for that to continue going forward does definitely put a floor to risk assets and even provides support for ongoing positive returns. But then a negative scenario could be as economies are being reopened, we could potentially have a wave two that could result in lockdown measures being re-implemented again, which is clearly not the base case scenario for the markets. So for me, that is one big unknown. The other unknown is more for the coming quarters and months is what happens with the U.S. election. And especially this has become even more important given what's happening in the U.S., given the social unrest and the, the popularity ratings for the incumbent. You know, obviously, if a Democrat candidate gets into power, what that means for corporate taxation going down the line, more impacting obviously 21 earnings and 22 earnings. That could obviously have an impact on equity prices as well. So overall, I would say, given the strength of the rally for equities and where prices are at at the moment, from my perspective, the base case scenario seems to be fairly optimistic and all the good news is priced in. So if we do have those other negative scenarios that I've talked about play out over the coming months, you could see a bit of a pullback.
0: That's very interesting. So staying with you, Mayak. Have there been any recent adjustments to our tactical asset allocation?
5: So tactical asset allocation remains neutral in terms of our overall equity positioning. And within that, we have a preference for quality and growth companies, which have more defensive cash flows and are better protected in a economic slowdown the reason clearly there are positives in terms of the fiscal spending in terms of what central banks have done the reason we're not more positive in terms of an outright overweight is because we feel that markets have run very strongly over the last couple of weeks and even months and now the risk reward uh, in terms of further returns from equity markets is limited and potentially we may have higher risks higher risks that are currently not being appreciated and in priced into equity markets so For us, neutral seems to be a prudent place.
0: And what would cause you to change this stance?
5: If equities were to sell off, let's say they were to sell off maybe 10%, we would reconsider that stance. In terms of the risk-reward trade-off improving for equities, valuations will become more attractive at that point. But as I said before, given how strongly they've rallied, it seems neutral is a fairly comfortable and prudent place for us to be at current levels. Thank you for
0: that. Sheldon, could I turn to you, please, and ask you to summarise our discussion today?
1: Well, if we go back to what we've titled this podcast, Racing the Recovery, I think at the moment it's clear that markets are winning that race. We have seen markets jump very strongly indeed, and that's partly because of the the stimulus measures that we've spoken about. We've seen those around the world. Pace and the scale of those stimulus measures has been unprecedented. But markets also running ahead on the hopes for economic recovery hoping for pent-up demand, for consumption to come back very quickly as we move out of the, the lockdown environment. Sentiment data is improving. The PMIs, which are based on surveys of purchasing managers, they're all starting to improve. But in terms of actual economic data, apart from that very nice unemployment figure that we got out of the U.S. last week, all in all it's probably still slightly too early to tell so the economic data not yet quite showing as strong a recovery as we've seen in markets in fixed income markets Also, not really indicating a runaway inflation scenario, which would also indicate maybe that the expectations of growth are maybe a little bit, slightly more subdued than equity markets are making out. In the meantime, geopolitical risks remain. We've had the rhetoric in US and China ramping up recently again. We've got risks here closer to home on Brexit. And of course, as you mentioned, the ever-present possibility of a second wave of the virus. So I think all in all, that means we're probably due for some volatility going forward, notwithstanding the, uh, the stunning recovery that we've had. So um, brace yourselves. Volatility, probably the order of the day. It is a normal thing in markets. Investors shouldn't take too much uh, fright from that if markets do get volatile. We are used to this and we do have portfolios that are diversified across many asset classes. And there are asset classes that, that are delivering positively and are giving us that diversification that we need in portfolios.
0: Thank you. Sounds like an interesting summer ahead. And thank you all very much indeed. Thanks very thank much. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, you
5: Lauren.